0: I had a mentor, a guy named Steve Walski. One day, you know, we're talking about someone and he says, Dave, I'm going to show you the meaning of life. And he goes to the whiteboard and draws two circles, two concentric circles. I'm looking at that and said, like a target? I'm like, what's the meaning of life? He goes, the outside circle is what people think who they are. The inner circle is who they actually are. The best leaders are very self-aware. And I've remembered this for so long because when I see a leader failing, invariably, it's because they're so self unaware that they may have good intent, but the way it's coming across is really falling, you know, on deaf ears or people are just tuning them out and they're losing their team. When you lose your team, you've lost it as leader. And so many yeah. leaders just have no sense of the fact that their team
1: doesn't respect them. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Open Phone brings your team's business calls, texts, and contacts into one delightful app that works anywhere. Get 20% off your first six months at openphone.com/slash twist. In Broker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at imbroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. And roots: invest in the only real estate investment trust that creates wealth for you and its residents at investwithroots.com slash twist.
2: All right, everybody, welcome back to This Week in Startups. We're having our all-star summer. Turns out a great time, grab a CEO, uh, an all-star CEO as a summer. They got a little bit of time and uh, what an incredible couple of weeks we've had. My friend Darmesh from HubSpot, he came on the pod just the other week. Qualtrics founder Ryan Smith, who now owns the Utah Jazz, and today is no different. Dave Itacheria is here. He's a serial entrepreneur, currently the CEO of MongoDB. Uh, do you like Dave or you like Dev?
0: Either is fine. I've been called worse.
2: <laughs> what does your mom call you? She calls you Dev, I bet.
0: She called, no, it's actually pronounced Dave. Like they've gone uh, to the ballgame. Like uh, the short form they Dave. have. Yeah, Got yeah. it. Unfortunately, uh. she's no longer here. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. But, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that's,
2: I always, that's uh, you know, with the Indian names, I'm always like, uh, I want to get it right, and it's you know it's uh, typically a little bit hard, so I always try three or four times with my dyslexia. Uh, so you've been a startup founder before. I remember you founded Blade Logic back in the day, uh, and I guess you were a VC for a hot minute. How long were you a VC for? Uh,
0: about two two and a half years. I started, uh, so I wasn't planned to be a VC, but uh, as you may remember, um, after I took Blade Logic public, and then we ended up selling it to BMC. For uh, close to a billion, which in those days actually meant something, uh, yeah. and uh, then I was trying to figure out what to do, it took some time off and I had joined the board of a few companies, and uh, that when the, that was when the trend of like uh, VC's hiring operators, either founders or operating executives. and so I got to know the Greylock guys uh, really well, and then they invited me to join. They wanted me to relocate to the West coast. I joined as a venture partner. Uh, but in the middle of that, my wife decided to pull the plug and she decided she didn't want to uh, relocate out west for a variety of personal reasons. And so Grillock was very, um, gracious, but I ended up staying there for about a year and a half. And then, um, um, then I moved, uh, to a smaller venture firm called OpenView. And, uh, my nodal investment there was I did the second round of Datadog, which ended up doing. Oh, that wow.
2: Work. That worked out too. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so explain to everybody uh, what MongoDB is and, and the niche it's carved for itself uh, in, in, the, in the data database space.
0: Yeah, so we're generally, uh, uh, we view ourselves as a, as a modern general purpose platform. So um, essentially, how people think about relational databases, we think, and, and now we know, we have proof that customers can use a much more performance, scalable, and easier to use platform uh, um, like MongoDB to essentially build amazing applications. So we had today have over 40,000 customers. Uh, we're about a $1.5 billion revenue company. Um, and our customers range from almost every bank on Wall Street, every large telecom company, to startups you never heard of. In fact, uh, we have tons of startups, including many AI startups who are building their applications on top of MongoDB. And the reason people use MongoDB is that uh, the relational database was designed. The first white paper came out in 1970, but the, uh, but was designed in an era where storage was really expensive. So, basically, a relational database is essentially a spreadsheet on steroids, where you can store a lot of information in rows and columns. The problem with that approach is that it's not very aligned to the way developers actually think and code. And so, our founders, who were um, um, actually you know built a company called DoubleClick that you may remember they acquired sure. by Google. Um, they were dealing with massive amounts of data in those days. This is the late 90s where they're serving billions of ads per day. And there were Kevin constantly O'Connor working around. and Kevin Ryan. Okay, that's right. And yeah. uh, uh, and Dwight Merriman was the CTO. So Dwight and Kevin and a gentleman named Elliot were the founders of MongoDB. And uh, they constantly had to work around the constraints of, of the relational database. And finally, they say, you know what? Why don't we just build a database that we would want to use? And that basically. Um, was the instant mongodb was instantiation of that insight and the key um, insight there was to organize data in documents versus tables and it's much more easy to organize data that way it's much more aligned to the way developers think in code it's very easy to add and change features and entries into the data model and also it's designed to be highly distributed so you can like serve the most demanding and most sophisticated requirements and that's essentially the way the company started as you can imagine you know, we first had to prove that we were more than a toy because there was a lot of excitement of MongoDB, but could, would people really trust us for we mission critical workloads? Uh, we, over time, we built a tons of features, in, including the highest form of data guarantees like asset transaction support that gave people confidence to, to do that. Then we decided to build a cloud service and we were actually probably the first, you know, you know, company to build a uh, well-known cloud service that ran across all the hyperscalers. And a lot of people were skeptical, saying, how can you both partner and compete with the hyperscalers because they're just going to eat your lunch? Everyone thought we we're going to be roadkill for AWS. And essentially, you know, one, we had amazing product market fit and and people just genuinely loved the way MongoDB was designed and and uh, essentially was incredibly popular. The One other thing that we had that not many other open source companies had was that we had a much more restrictive license so the hyperscalers couldn't take our free version of our product and go compete with us. And so when they saw the popularity of MongoDB, they came out with their own document databases, but they're built on a very different architecture. In fact, built on a relational architecture. So there's severe feature and performance trade-offs. And so our win rates against what we call the clones are very high. And over time, the hyperscalers realized we were so, um, popular and we we're driving so much consumption of their cloud and store and compute services. That our relationships have changed, in fact, so much so that we are the only ISV that's on the management consoles of AWS, Azure, and GCP today. And we have incentives for customers to apply their credits towards an MongoDB or what we call Atlas or cloud service. And then their salespeople also get compensated for selling Atlas. So it's, it's a, it's, we still partner and we still compete, but it's a very healthy relationship.
2: And if I remember correctly, uh, you know, I remember in the early days of startups, Web 2.0 ish coming out of that sort of movement, uh, right after the great financial crisis, a lot of startups were looking for affordable solutions, they're not going to go roll up and do some Oracle database, MongoDB was just a really easy choice for one or two or three development teams at a startup to get up and running and not have to pay a fortune or get it for free in the open source license, or just pay, you know, A very small amount of money a couple hundred bucks a month or less to to get up and running this is uh, a pattern that didn't exist before that getting startups to become your base and then growing with them so you had a lot of startups grow with the product maybe you could talk a little bit about that as a growth strategy
0: yeah so what you have to realize is for startups their biggest constraint is how much can their development teams produce because by definition they're small teams and one of the most attractive things about MongoDB is that the speed of development is so much faster People can build new features, add new capabilities, because developers spend about 80% of the time working with data. Right? If you think about any application, one of the biggest problems that developers have to figure out is when to present the right data to the right audience at the right time with the right security constraints, so on and so forth. And so when you can make it very easy to work with data, you can dramatically increase developer productivity. So that's why people gravitated to MongoDB is that because of the document model, it just becomes so much easy to work, so much easier to work with data, which by definition means developers can move faster. So that's essentially why they decided to go and why MongoDB go with MongoDB and why MongoDB is so popular today.
2: Are you still using your personal phone number for your startup in 2023? Is your sales team? Really? Your ops people? Customer support? This is a huge mistake. You have your precious customers, your clients, your partners in one of your team members personal phones and team members last what one year to five years on average, and then all that knowledge is gone forever. And maybe they go to a competitor. Well, open phone will solve this problem. Open phone has rethought every detail of what a modern business phone will look like. It's just magic. You download an app or you log in on your desktop, and you're done. It's amazing. My sales team, my ops team, they use it every single day. And we've recently found that it's valuable for when we do conferences, we have a phone number for when we do something like Angel Summit, all of the communications goes through there. If anybody needs to call us our VIPs, they call that. And then it can do like a round robin kind of thing where it rings multiple phones at once. So different employees can field those calls and nobody gets to the fourth fifth ring. It's the number one rated business phone on G2 for customer satisfaction. And that's really hard to do. If you're in the SaaS business, you know how hard it is to beat competitors in the ratings game open phone is already affordable to you at a starting price of $13 per user per month. But twist listeners, you always get a better deal. You get 20% off any plan for the first six months at openphonecom slash twist and if you have an existing number with another service, Open Phone will port them over at no extra cost. Head to openphone.com/slash twist to start your free trial and get 20% off. So I guess the big question that every founder, especially ones who have large repositories of data, are thinking about today and their customers are asking about is artificial intelligence and you know using different AI models to analyze their data, process their data. Now, of course, you have this issue. The data you mentioned privacy, you mentioned security. Really dangerous to point some model uh, at a database because they might incorporate it into uh, the the language model. It might do some learning based on it, and then obviously, um, you know, you have massive privacy issues. So, uh, as a CEO, now you've been doing this for multiple decades. Tell me about your reaction to just the last—I guess it's about nine months now—since ChatGPT 3.5 came out and the pace this is all going, and what your customers are asking you for.
0: Yeah. So, um, obviously, uh, it's been a profound impact on our industry. Um, I might be staying the blind the obvious. What we've seen is almost 1,500 customers, since that announcement, build AI applications on top of MongoDB. And we think AI is going to be a big uh, driver for our business. One, because it will increase developer productivity. You know, you could argue the statistics say, anywhere from 20 to 50% with code generation tools and automated testing tools. So by definition, there's no development team I know of who doesn't have a backlog of things that they want to accomplish. And now, if you increase their productivity, you can just generate more applications. The second thing it does, it basically enables development teams to increase the scale and ambition of what they want to build, like the sophistication of those applications. And by definition, if you are building more and more sophisticated and and performant applications, you need a platform that can really address and serve those needs. So we feel like we're beneficiary there. One of the hot things in our space is something called vector databases, um, and vector is essentially a way for people to prevent hallucinations based on data coming from LLMs, and also marry private data with public data because not everyone wants to put all their data in, say, OpenAI or any other LLM out there, and so. We just announced uh, a vector capability. Unlike other people who are using point solutions, one of the challenges in our industry is there's almost like a a single function database for almost every use case, time series, graph, you know, caching, et cetera. Our belief is that it's much better for developers to have one elegant, unified platform to enable them to have a wide, to enable them to do a wide variety of use cases. Um, and also have a wide variety of deployment models, whether deploying their own data center in the cloud, or say on an edge device. And so we've introduced Vector; it's in pro- uh, public preview right now, and interest is very high. And that will just enable development teams to build AI applications even faster using MongoDB.
2: And how do you look at the uh, staffing of a modern day tech company? Because we've seen what Elon did over at Twitter, uh, Google, Facebook getting fit cutting, you know, uh, they kind of got ahead of their skis. I assume you did a riff, I'm not sure. um, During uh, last year, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And but we're seeing this massive gain developers are reporting, you know, depending on the developer 20%, 50% uh, more efficiency. So how do you think about scaling technology companies when uh, especially things like copilot and writing code seems to be where the greatest lift is right now. So do you think these companies become, you know, one where the writing of a job description is more work than just putting a little bit of AI on uh, making the existing team faster? And then what that means for profitability of these companies?
0: so um i you said a couple of things there, so yeah, you know, I'm old enough where I've seen down cycles. I think anyone thirty five or younger has never seen a down cycle before this one, and anyone forty or younger has never managed through a down cycle. Unfortunately, I'm older than that, so the good yeah. news is that uh that I've seen some down cycles, so we never you know ran the business at um you know growth at all costs now, when we went public, we were trailing hundred million in revenue and a negative forty percent operating margins, and today. We're about a $1.5 billion revenue run rate business with 12% operating margin. So we've grown the business very quickly, but also shown a a lot of operating leverage. And we've done that by being very disciplined about how we invest and run the business. So we never actually did like a um, kind of company wide rift. We did do some surgical rifts, say, like we had too many recruiters given our growth was slowing down. Uh, And then we may have had some excess sales capacity in regions where we didn't see that the market was as big as we originally thought. But we've not done a company wide riff. In fact, one of the things we've really forced our leaders to do is real performance management. Because one of the things, um, I think riffs do is basically that's the easy way out to cut costs, but you don't really develop the muscles and so knowing how to have high, you know, d- define high expectations, you know, hold people accountable and then reward people are doing great, but also hold people accountable for maybe not performing. And that's a muscle that I think a lot of younger leaders do not have. And that's something we're very, very focused on. Obviously, in the startup area, we're seeing very lean startups who are, you know, two, three, five-person teams who are building apps. I think the jury's out about how productive developers can be. I think some of these tools are quite nascent. So I wouldn't say that people are declaring victory that, you know, they suddenly found a panacea to their issues. But clearly, people are very, very uh, focused on using some of these uh, AI tools to improve productivity. We see a lot of focus on testing and automated testing. We see a lot of code generation. We can kind of get 80% of the way there, but then you need to kind of go in and then uh, look at the code carefully and make sure there's no issues. So there's no question it's going to be a boon to developer productivity, but I think that it's still early days yet. Um, but we clearly see a lot of startups who are trying to use AI tools to reduce the OPEX costs of building apps. And I think I think there's a way that's going to come. But again, I want to say most development teams I talk to have a laundry list of things they want to do that they can't do. So I'm, I don't see them... Initially using AI as a way to cut costs, but just using AI to kind of get more out the door faster, um, just to be able to serve the market and the customers getting through the backlog
2: faster seems to be what this year has been about, right? I mean, people are just getting more done with the same size team, which is amazing, right? Uh, Great for customers and and great for companies and great for margin. Like you're saying, you've been through this before, Uh, I assume you went remote, you had to during COVID. And uh, you're an old school guy like me. Uh, we both th- we've been through the dot com bust. We've both been through the great financial crisis. And then this insanity, uh, which was particularly brutal, I think, for uh, everybody. So um, how do you look at remote work? And are you hybrid remote? Do you think something's been lost? You know, uh, is your is your thinking on it dynamic uh, in terms of going back to the office?
0: Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. One, I think the toothpaste is out of the tube. I don't think you can ever force people to come back to the office five days a week, eight, 10 hours a day. I think those days are long gone. We do believe in in a kind of uh, the value of getting together on site. And so we have a hybrid uh, approach to um, how we do work. And I know there's a lot of things. I mean, we're based in New York and there's a lot of the, the banks are trying to force people to come back, but you see them kind of trying to do that, but then they're kind of, you know, relaxing the rules because, um, it's hard to get people to come back, especially with the friction of commute. You're a New York guy, so you know if you yeah. living in the boroughs, it could be anywhere from an hour to hour and a half commute into, the, into Manhattan. And that's three hours a day for someone. And if you can make them more productive by working from home, and then pick and choose when to come in for meetings, for quarterly reviews, uh, for planning sessions, etc., that makes more sense to us. Um, so we're a hybrid culture. Uh, attendance has been quite good this summer. We're seeing... Tuesday to Thursdays, 50 to 60% attendance in New York, and other locations, maybe slightly less. But um, so our offices are actively used. Uh, we've not cut back on real estate, because at least in our major offices, because we see a lot of active usage. But obviously, we're being cautious about how quickly we expand uh, into, you know, either expanding capacity in our major offices or adding new offices.
2: Why do and you I think believe- people are coming back? You think that they miss it? Or do you think the management is saying, "Hey, listen. In order to hit these targets, we need to work as a team better, and it's a, a culture issue uh, or an accountability issue." I think what what do you think hope. is driving? I I,
0: it? Yeah. I, I I see younger people wanting to be in the office. One, they probably hmm. live in smaller apartments and homes where they may not have the space to work comfortably at home. Two, if you're a young person, I mean, a lot of people meet their partners at work or in work surroundings, so there's an incentive to meet people. in New York is a fun city, so people. Maybe you want to go out afterwards, grab a bite to eat or go out for drinks or do something else. So a lot of our younger folks actually want to come to the office uh, and work from the office. I would say the more the senior folks, they pick and choose the moments when they come in again, you know, tied to specific meetings or events or planning sessions that are having. So I almost joke on site is like the old offsite for, for, yeah. for more senior people. And then obviously if you have a, you know, if you're a leader of a team, especially of younger people, you need to be on site to mentor. Give guidance, assess how things are going. So, I, I, I'm, we're not so rigid in terms of like, you have to be in the office three, four, five days a week, depending on your role. But we do encourage people to come to the office. And then it's really up to them, the leader of that team, uh, or say the VP of that, you know, department to really determine what the right operating cadence is. Um, but my belief is if someone works hard at work, they're going to work hard at home. If someone doesn't work hard at work, they're not going to work hard at home. So what we do is to hold our leaders accountable to make sure they're getting the productivity out of their teams. And that seems to have worked for us.
2: Yeah, that is I think every manager's nightmare is you you look at some of these subreddits where they have like a subreddit called overworked. And specifically the development community. It's kind of like a joke. Oh, yeah, I got three jobs. There was I had somebody who said, uh, I have an ethical question on one of our investments um, we have somebody who works at Google, uh, and they want to work for us too. Um, But they said their Google job takes two hours a day, and they can do it off hours. So is it And he wants like a, you know, a very modest salary to come work for us full time. And I was like, that's completely unethical. Like, you you can't possibly hire that person. Yes. But the founder was like, I don't know. I mean, I needed a developer. It sounds like he's perfect. And I was like, No, you cannot do that. That person is breaking matters. Yes. It, yes and and they're breaking every agreement and, and on an ethical moral basis it's insane
0: it, it is insane and that would not be tolerated here um, yeah. so uh, um, and I think you know to me eth- ethics is what pe- you people do when no one's looking and so if this person is doing this I think what they, what I encourage that person to do is instead of working two hours and getting a job done go up to your boss and saying what more can I do because I'm ambitious and I want to do more and if they don't want to give you more then say maybe I shouldn't be here anymore so I think that um, just would not fly here.
2: Listen, I work with super early stage companies at launch, like literally year zero. They haven't even incorporated yet, and then we hit the Series A. People have thousands of dollars in MRR, and they maybe they've only raised a couple of hundred thousand before that Series A, and they don't have their insurance set up. And in fact, we recently had a great startup that didn't have DNO, and we had to really stop everything because they were having board meetings, they were making massive decisions, there were legal issues. And they didn't have the basic D&O insurance that protects directors and officers. So we send them right to Embroker. Embroker is business insurance built specifically for startups. A single application will help your startup get four quotes for four lines of coverage in 15 minutes. Think about that. Four quotes, four lines, 15 minutes. And they're going to connect you with one of their expert brokers for unmatched service that goes beyond your policy. We use it at launch. It's easy peasy lemon squeezy. It's easy breezy. What more do I need to tell you? I use it. I love it. A lot of our startups use it. They love it. Try and broker today with the code twist. And you'll get 10% off their startup package in broker.com slash twist. That's E M B R O K E R.com slash twist and use the code twist for 10% off. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. I just wonder like, I don't know what your first job was, you know, your first five or 10 years in the industry. But man, it was so formative to be in an office to be around people with 10, 20, 30 years and see, you know, wow, there's a 50 year old CEO over here. Here's how they're behaving. Oh, there's the sales team. Here's how they're behaving. This is how the culture works. These are the people who get in early. These are the people who stay late. These are the people who crush it. These are the people who are screwing around. uh, And maybe their careers aren't going the way they want them to. I feel like something massive has been lost for young people, especially maybe you could talk a little bit
0: about yeah, I, I completely agree. Like like you, um, I learned a lot by observing other people's behavior, what to do and what not to do. And I think that on the job education learning is something you just can't get from a book. You can't like watch a YouTube video to learn. You just got to be in and watch how people do. And I learned so much. And my whole philosophy on leadership is you're always a student of the game, not a master of the game, because you're always listening and learning. And if you think you're the master, no matter how senior you are, you're gonna you know hit a wall because things are changing so quickly. That, and for young people, there's no better way to kind of learn than seeing, you know, what other people do, both do well and not do well. So I, I completely agree with you. So we try and encourage our younger employees to come to the office more or say they're in a, in a sales role where they're more remote, that they get a lot of, you know, inspection of what they're doing and they, you know, and their leaders or their manager will go with them on sales calls to help them get their first couple of deals, you know, assess them how they handle meetings assess them on how they qualify an opportunity. And same with the young you know, developer, right? Like, you know, really sitting down. And, you know, we expect a lot of our, our leaders to be coaches, right, in terms of coaching them, whether it's doing code reviews, whether it's, you know, uh, planning, whether it's how they, you know, think about a design document, so on and so forth. So that, that on-the-job learning is so incredibly valuable. I couldn't agree more.
2: How do you think about hiring today? There's generational differences. You and I, I think, are Gen X you know, and uh, millennials, and, you know, maybe the generation after them, maybe they value work differently, they may not be as driven, there may be, uh, you know, just differences generally, how do you think about hiring and inspiring, you know, this, these next couple of generations to do their best work, and also cutting people who just can't get it done? You know, do you have some thoughts on just generally talent uh management?
0: Yeah, so, um I mean, this is, I mean, a question I think every CEO and every leader has to deal with. I mean, we obviously try and hire people who are really ambitious, who want to really make an impact, who bring a, both a, a high degree of skills and, uh, um, you know, competence, whether if they're, they're a young person, they have a good academic track record, and they're, you can just tell that they're busting at the seams to make an impact, and as well as hire senior people who uh, still feel like they're very passionate and, and are very driven. Clearly, we're not perfect in hiring and we mistakes are made. And I think this is back to leadership. I believe any organization, is co- the, the quality of an organization is directly correlated with the quality of leadership. And I also believe that people perform to what you inspect versus what you expect. So we have a culture where there's a high degree of inspection of what people are doing, how things are going. And even things, you know, one of the things I think young leaders struggle with is how to give feedback. Because... One of the hardest things that a young leader can do is knowing how to hold people accountable. So for example, we teach people, hey, first you have to be clear on expectations. And the first time you give someone feedback, you know, you you're kind of calibrating on those expectations. You know, Joe, this is what I meant, here's what I really expect, etc. Now the next time you give feedback, which is this which is essentially the second time you give feedback, now you're holding someone accountable. And what I find is that most young managers one, they're not clear on what the expectations of the role or the project or the initiative is. So that's problem number one. So two, they kind of give some very mealy-mounted feedback that the person kind of says, you know, I expect more here and that. And then what typically happens is at the end of the year, they get, they give someone a weak review and the person's pissed saying like, well, you didn't tell me that this was above. So it's kind of a a, a weird dynamic. So we really... Get our leaders to try and be much better at being clear on expectations. And then you can give feedback relative to those expectations. Um, in terms of more specific on hiring, one of the things I look for, obviously it depends on someone who's a little bit more senior, is I try and understand, you know, what transitions are made from job to job. If you think about it, one of the most important decisions you can make in life is what company or what job you're going to take, you know, above, beyond, say, choosing your partner. And so. What I'm trying to understand is why did it go from Company A to Company B and from Company B to Company Mm. C? Now I'm expecting every company to be a home run, but I'm trying to really understand their thought process because what it's telling me is how careful and deliberate are they in in making that decision? And if they're very cavalier or or they say I followed my boss to Company B, then I'm saying how thoughtful are you going to be about making decisions here at MongoDB? So that's something that's really great. Yeah,
2: that's a really Uh, astute one because. Yeah, if you don't take your own career uh, and make that decision thoughtfully um, with, you know, some precision, like what decision are you going to make here? I also love the, hey, we're going to set expectations, but we're going to inspect your work. And I think, you know, trust but verify is just such an important, um, you know, operating philosophy. We do this all the time with due diligence. And we'll have people say to us when we're investing in companies and you were an investor for a little bit hey, you know, you're you're putting only I don't know 500k into the seed round, you're asking for more diligence than the lead was putting in two million. And I'll say, Okay, (laughs) you know, we still want to talk to three customers. And we still want to see your IP assignments. And we still have to look at bank statements to make sure that you know, this is all here because we have LPs. And we want to make sure that if something goes awry, we've at least done. that. And uh, it's uncomfortable, right? Sometimes it's uncomfortable to inspect somebody's work um but if you're doing it with the right intent and it's to make them better uh the the right person should look at it like coaching like this is amazing somebody's looking at my work and telling me how to do it better if you've got a problem with this you probably don't want to be exceptional in your career
0: i i couldn't agree more um and you know one of the uh things i think um i i heard this quote on a podcast um um that um a guy by the name of Jeremy Giffon made that who used to be at Tiny, which is kind of a holding company. Yeah, And, he, sure. and the comedy made was the only enduring uh, edge in life is psychological as human nature doesn't change. Things mm. like grit, things like managing your ego, things to be comfortable with low status, being unconventional, having long-term orientation are so critical to success, but so hard to do because it's so contrary to human nature. And to your point, like when someone comes to "Well, you know, I want to, this is the title I want, I'm not coming. You know, while I understand that you want to be paid fairly for your work, when you get so obsessed by a title, or so obsessed by managing your ego, or so obsessed about status, you know, I start wondering about that person. And, um, and similarly, when you're talking to a startup, and they almost take umbrage that you want to do rigorous due diligence. I'm like you guys. Are going to be we're going to be partners for the next ten, potentially ten plus years. You know, don't we want to start the relationship in the right way? You know, and to build a relationship, we need to be incredibly transparent. So it's always to me a red flag when people behave that way. Uh, and I gravitate to people who obviously are more legal and that more low ego and low status. And that's kind of the way I run my life.
2: Yeah, the ego thing is very interesting to me. I've seen this many times uh, where people want credit for work they haven't done yet. This is I, the huge pet peeve I have just as a manager investor in companies. And just when I was working briefly for other people, twice in my life, so this weird group of people who would like to get the title or the compensation for work that they are going to accomplish in the next year or two. And I was like, right. well, how about you do the work? And then we give you the reward. Maybe you talk about incentives and how you would think about incentives. Uh, because people do seem to be quite entitled these days. And you know, we, we did this to ourselves in the 90s. You know, it and tech, it was just people expected to work 60 70 hours a week, you were expected to stay till nine o'clock, you expect to come in on the weekend if you had a project. And then Google started giving people massages and doing their dry cleaning and babying them and being their, you know, surrogate parent, uh, and we, we coddled people, let's be honest. So how do you think about entitlement and managing that, um, you know, yeah. and so, and, and um,
0: um, <laughs> you know, if you saw some of the questions as you get in some of my old hands, you know, there were people who felt very entitled, um, um, you know, one question I got recently was obviously with inflation spiking up, you know, are we going to increase everyone's salary by X percent to match <laughs> inflation? And And what I explained to them was, I said. I didn't get this question when inflation was essentially zero that people are saying, well, you know, don't give me a raise, right? So what we do is match the market. Now, the market does reflect the cost of living, does reflect inflation, you know, you know uh, into that number, but we're not just going to, res- you know, um, increase people's salaries because inflation is high for the last six months. That makes no sense. And some people took umbrage with that. And, I, you know, what I was trying to explain to them is that. Um, You know, we try and be competitive in the market, but we have an obligation to our investors um, to be able to manage the business as efficiently as possible. Now, luckily, that that percentage of people were small, uh, but those are the kind of questions and quote-unquote the entitlement you're referring to. In general, I think if you explain people the why, they kind of get what you're trying to do. Now, some people may not want to listen to the why. Or some people may not like the why, but if you've really done a good job explaining the why for what you're doing and why you're doing it, I mean, and how you're doing it, then, uh, that becomes, you know, a much easier conversation to have. Um, and, 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 you know, we explained to our employees when we started, we had a, what we call initially called raising the bar where we said, Hey, investors expectations are changing. You know, I started seeing the tea leaves change last summer. I got my executive team essentially aligned around, like, we have to change our, you know, the, how we kind of run the business, we have to drive more efficiency. And um, one of the things we asked was to, you know, have a 5% number of people who did not meet expectations. You thought that I'd ask for someone to give up their firstborn child when, <laughs> I, when, I, when I did this, right? And, yeah. uh, and I, you know, It's one of out
2: of 20 people. It's exactly. Just so we're, we're framing it correctly here. Put 20 people, rank them. Who came in 20th? Do they exactly. need to be here or not? You know, exactly. like, be thoughtful. And, I
0: mean. Exactly. But as you imagine, there was a lot of uproar. And then I explained to them, I showed them the data. They said, we have 8% percent non regretted attrition in the company typically every year. So by definition, we're happy to see 8% of our people leave. But the problem is that we're not more proactive about that. We need to be much more proactive about that. And I'm not only asking for 5%. And when people started doing it, then I started getting feedback from VPs. Wow, it was surprisingly easy to do the 5%. I said, what does that tell you? It says that we're not doing as good of a job we should be on performance management. So these are the muscles that we're trying to build with our leaders in terms of being much more rigorous. And you're right, you know, in the days when you're competing for talent and Google and Facebook are throwing money and all these perks, and we're competing for the same people, it's hard sometimes to, to you know, not feel like you got to bend backwards to acquire these people. But I think the world has changed. and And now we have to get our leaders to, you know, um, run the business much more rigorously.
2: Hey, everybody. Today, I'm joined by Roots CEO Dan Dorfman. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Tell everybody here in the audience, what is Roots? And what makes it different than the other real estate investing platforms? I'm a complete neophyte.
1: Roots is a REIT with a little twist. Sorry, I had to do it. We are the first real estate portfolio that we know of that builds wealth for both our investors and our residents. And we've created a unique win win model that creates partners and not tenants. We built this model because I've spent my entire career in real estate investment, 13 years. And what you always hear from people is, hey, location, location, location. But location at the end of the day doesn't actually pay your bills. And location doesn't let you know when there's a small leak that will create mold in the future, the people do. And the people who rent your properties are really the people who generate your profits. And when those people are your partners, it really creates this amazing scenario. And it's this model that's helped us grow our fund over 36% in the last two years.
2: Fantastic, how can people learn more about this opportunity both on the tenant side or on the investor side? Check
1: us out at investwithroots.com backslash twist.
2: All right, everybody go to invest with roots, no spaces, no dashes.com slash twist to sign up and start investing today. What they all find, and this is universal across all companies, when you cut a couple of people who are weak, uh, and who aren't getting the job done, the people at the top are like, thank you, finally, because I know I'm busting my ass. And I know that that person isn't. And it felt profoundly unfair to me. And the, the, the reason why a players leave is because the B players or the C players are, you know, allowed to, to stick around. I mean, Steph Curry does not want to see somebody who shows up late for the gym and do, you know and leaves an hour early and he's busting his ass and he's the greatest shooter of all time you know like you gotta you gotta be able to keep pace and inevitably what we've learned i think over the last two years with the cuts and the optimization and the austerity is um smaller teams uh that are optimized this way perform better it, it's not a matter of throwing bodies at things it's a matter of efficiency in the team chemistry right
0: yeah, so I remember, um, you know, my seminal first fire. It was a seminal moment for me when I had to fire my first person, and I was Ooh, like, "That's you know, always I'll tough." Be, you know, my <laughs> was hands your knee were shaking, shaking <laughs> knees shaking. Yeah. You know, I sweating bullets. And what got me over the hump was realizing if I don't solve this problem, I'm penalizing all the good people. To your point, who are doing yeah. you know great work. And and now when I you know when you talk to younger leaders, you know one of the questions you ask people is like, "What do you think people say about you when you when you leave the room?" Do you yeah. think, Joe, that you're a great leader because you're letting, you know, that employee get away with coming in late, leaving early and not, you know, doing their job? And what do you think the message is being, what What do you think the message is being sent to everyone else on the team? So when you start, yeah. you know, you know, framing things that way, all of a sudden you can see the light bulbs popping and saying, oh my God. Um, and because people are so nervous about holding people accountable and so nervous about like dealing with issues, you know, you know, that, you know, handling confrontation, and this is one of the other things. Like, you know, a lot of people talk about the hard skills. You know, how good of a developer are you? How good of a salesperson are you? How good of a marketer are you? But in some ways, those soft skills, which I don't think are really soft, like knowing how to give and receive feedback, knowing how to deal with you know confrontation, knowing how to um, um, you know set aspirational goals and try and get people to think about doing things that they don't even themselves think is possible. You know, those are skills that are so critical to building a great business that not many people talk about, but it's so important and something that we try and focus on here.
2: Yeah, I remember the first time I had to fire somebody and there was, everybody was unanimous. This person was just doing a terrible job. And so, you know, you always have to have two or three people in the room. So, I got the president of the organization, my friend Carol Martesco, uh, if he hears this, (laughs) he'll laugh. And, uh, you know, we tell the person i got my knees shaking a little bit under the table I said, listen you know you, the assignments haven't been on time um you know we're letting you go here's two weeks severance we wish you well in your career she goes i can't believe you're doing this i'm the hardest working person here but my my president of the organization standing behind her and he just goes like this she can't see his reaction and he just like rubs his eyes and what's obvious to me a lot of times the people who actually don't bring it are completely delusional, they, they actually don't know and you're doing them incredible mitzvah, you're doing them the greatest uh, thing in the world, which I, the HR person who had coached me, um, Sunny Bates, um, in New York, she had told me, you know, like, you're doing this person a favor, they're gonna have a soft landing, they're gonna find another job, but they need the feedback in the world that they're not hitting the notes and that this is not how you can succeed in your career. And uh, after that, I was like, pretty fine with it. I I don't take joy in having to cut somebody. It's a failure of management that you hired them and didn't manage them. But you also can't be a psychologist. You you cannot do therapy with people at work or fix whatever happened in their childhood or whatever personal problems they have to make them hit the notes. That's not your job. You can set expectations. They hit it. They hit it. You can do some professional development. But yeah, I think sometimes young managers try to do too much to help a person.
0: So uh, I had a mentor, a guy named Steve Walski. He used to be the chairman and CEO of a company called PTC, which was a killer software company in the 90s. In fact, you know they were growing at over 100% a year with like 40% operating margins and was a direct sales organization. Um, so he, he ended up being my mentor when I was um, building and running and played logic and actually ended up recruiting him on the board and actually asked him to be chairman. And so he one day... You know, we're talking about someone and he says, Dave, I'm going to show you the meaning of life. And he goes to the whiteboard and draws two circles, two concentric circles. I'm looking at that and said, like a target. I'm like, what's the meaning of life? He goes, he goes, the outside circle is what people think who they are. The inner circle is who they actually are. Uh And what basically the point he was trying to make was that the best leaders are very self aware. They're, they're self aware in terms of how they're coming across you know, what biases they have, what triggers them in terms of anger or frustration, what, what what makes them happy. But they're also very situationally aware about like how their messages are landing with their teams and their organizations and all that. And I've remembered this for so long because when I see a leader failing invariably, it's because they're so, so self-unaware Now they may have good intent, but the way it's coming across is really falling, you know, you know on deaf ears or people are just tuning them out and they're losing their team. And and some people can react and quickly correct, but a lot of people can't. And it's amazing mm-hmm. to me. You know, so a hallmark of great leaders is how self-aware they are. And that's something that I try and pay a lot of attention to because when you lose your team, you've lost it as leader. And so many yep. leaders just, just uh, you know, have no sense of the fact that their team doesn't respect them. And a big reason, one of the big reasons I, I realized is that bad news travels very slowly up the organization. But good news will find me anywhere. I can be on a freaking island in Bali and they'll call yep. me. You close that sale. Yeah. You close that sale. We got that great engineer, that it's 10X like engineer. Gun. <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> right. But bad news will, will travel very slowly. So I'll give you an example. We kind of have a customer situation. The customer says, the product doesn't work. We're throwing you out, blah, blah, blah. The, the account team, the account manager goes, holy f- S-H-I-T. Tells yeah. his boss. The boss tells his boss. And by the time it gets to me, hey, we're having a problem with Acme Company, but we're on top of it. And, and so, as a senior leader, you can very quickly get inoculated from bad news. And then you get yes. flat-footed when that Acme Company sends you, you know, that they're not renewing or they're basically throwing yep. you out the door. So, whenever I hear bad news, I always, always assume two things. One, it's far worse than what people are telling me. And two, that I'm the last to know. And so the joke inside this company is like, when I hear bad news, I'll stop and say, tell me more and dig in. And invariably, you find out that there's a lot worse stuff going on. And everyone knows this. Like, whenever a bad leader leaves, you always find out there's a lot worse <laughs> that was going on than you yep. even knew. And so, and so, yeah. um, but, but, but you need to create a culture. But this is where companies run to problems. They don't create a culture where it's okay to share bad news, right? They only want to hear good news or the people shoot the messenger so everyone said, well, what incentive do I have to say, you know, uh, what's going on? But conversely, if you they see that there's a, you know, that bad news is quickly corrected, then they say, "Only oh, you know, there's a meritocracy around here. Like, you know, there's a bias to action. People are going to respond to issues. So people get more and more comfortable surfacing the bad news. And I do this even in my board meetings. Like, I never start with good news. I'm always talking about what's going bad. And I, and I, co- and I coach younger CEOs who, many of them have a massive imposter syndrome, because I know that because I was there, and say... If you tell an experienced board member that everything is going great, they're either going to think, A, you don't know what you don't know, or B, you're lying, right? Because even the best run companies, something's blowing up somewhere, right? So start with bad news. And the more you share bad news, the more trusting your board becomes. And now they're not saying that now they're saying, okay, Dave's not you know, Dave's not hiding anything from me. How can I help Dave solve these problems? It completely changes the dynamic. But it takes you know, vulnerability is a skill as a, I would say a strength, not a weakness, but it takes time to really understand it.
2: Yeah, that I had to create systems for this, because it was a blind spot I had, P- you know, people would not tell me the bad news, because they didn't want to upset me, which is reasonable, you know, who you know, shoot, the messenger is a, a term for a reason, like everybody right. uh, knows that colloquialism. And so what I did was, you know, I had um, somebody on our team, set up uh, a little script that sends any founder we meet with uh, 30 days 60 days after we meet with them. Hey, uh, it was great meeting with you. You met with this person on the team. We we just wanted to check in and see how your business is going. And then if you could rate us on a scale of one to 10, how likely you are to recommend us to another founder. uh, This is the people who we passed on investing in. So if you pass on investing, like, (laughs) obviously, they're like, you're an idiot, you didn't realize my brilliance. And uh, so we set this thing up. And you know, the fives and the sixes start coming in. These are classic detractors on the NPS score. And yeah, you know what the number one result is? I didn't get enough FaceTime with Jason or Jason didn't understand our business. Like literally, this was, you know, a blind spot where people just felt like I wasn't giving enough attention to the founders. And so we started rewarding that. And I said, listen, this is going to be scary to get this information. What I want you to do is start off the investment team meeting with two or three of the negative reviews, and then how we could avoid them. It turned out a lot of times we'll email a founder and tell them, hey, we're not investing. And um, they don't get the email. It's a stupid thing. But emails go into spam where people miss emails. So now we like to get on the phone with them and email them and make sure that they know, hey, we're not investing. It's not a fit for this reason. Uh, but we're very impressed. We'd love to said, you know, this is the things we did like we'd like to stay in touch. And you know, you, can, you can't fix things that are breaking like that unless you have a systematic feedback loop. And that's what I've tried to do is just institutionalize the bad news and embrace it uh, and, and start every meeting with it.
0: I think, um, you know, for startups, you know, the, the cycle time for feedback has to be really, really small, right? Because um, feedback is essentially what I consider tension is dynamism in the system. It's k- kind of essentially Um, you know, you can literally make the argument that, you know, being alive is all about kind of needing feedback. And for a startup, like constantly getting feedback on how things are going. And in in this contrast, like a small startup versus, say, a large bureaucratic organization like the, you know, motor vehicle agency in in your state, right? The feedback loops are incredibly long because people there don't care about what you think. They're just going to do what they're going to do, which is why government is so dysfunctional. And so the more time and space between feedback, the more problems you create. So it's you faster. have to create a system where yeah. you can give feedback quickly and you can act on feedback. And one of the challenges I see is the biggest time gap is between you know, seeing a problem and actually acknowledging a problem, right? People, there's so many people, like whenever you act, ask people, why did this project blow up? Or why did this customer leave? Or why didn't we know that this engineer wasn't that great or, or real, really hard to work with? The signs were there everywhere, but people yep. just didn't act on it, right? And so the, the more you get people to shorten that gap between seeing a problem and acting on a problem, the more effective, and, and, uh, uh, more effective an organization you're going to have.
2: Yeah. And so uh, when you look at the sort of distraction uh, that's sort of crept into corporate America, um, I don't know if you know Brian Armstrong from Coinbase or watched him have to deal with. You know, I'm assuming you use Slack or some Microsoft Teams or something like that, and then yeah. people decide, "Oh, I'm going to go in the random channel and I'm going to talk about, you know, whatever the cause of the moment is, or the social issue of the moment, or the political issue of the moment." Um, how do you think about corporations staying focused on their mission? And do you believe that companies should be engaging? I mean, we've got tons of examples like this, but light, whatever. But putting those aside and the woke stuff aside, just keeping the team focused. On what matters, and maybe not these sort of side quests. How how do you think about all that that's going on? Yeah, it's
0: it's a it's a tricky issue. I will tell you, like uh, the day after Trump won in 2016, I had actually a scheduled all hands meeting. It was just timing was coincidental, and I remember walking in. You know, the all hands meeting was in New York, but we were piping in different offices, and you could hear a pin drop. You could just see everyone's face, people, and as you imagine, you know, most of my employees are in cosmopolitan cities they are highly educated they're young so you can imagine what part of the political spectrum they gravitate to sure and they were you know there were people crying like you people just and i felt like if i couldn't if i didn't acknowledge what had happened i would just you know again being self-aware you know no one really listened to what i have to say so i said listen the the learning for me is that um I was obviously in a news bubble. I had no. I did not believe Trump could win. I thought there was no chance in hell. But yeah. it, clearly, I was in my bubble. And what it forces me to realize is, you know, what are th- things that I'm not listening? Where, you know, what are people saying that I'm not hearing? And it's forcing me to say, like, there's a part of this new country where I'm just not connected to, and I've got to do a better job of, of being more grounded about what's actually happening. And and I just kind of use that as a teaching moment, and people yeah. appreciated that and and all that. But you're right. I mean, you know, we went through George Floyd. Um, you know, obviously it was a very tragic incident. We went through a bunch of things. I did put up a um I sent out an email after George Floyd. Like I didn't fully appreciate what had happened. We had a board meeting that week and I was kind of focused on my board meeting. But then I started seeing the news, I started seeing all the um um you know, the riots and then marches that were going on, and I felt like I had to say something, and I just sent out a note and actually still on in LinkedIn because people didn't ask me why do put it on LinkedIn saying you know, I just want to acknowledge that there's people who are really struggling with this, and we should be empathetic about what's happening and not just ignore it. So, for me, I think saying you cannot talk about politics or you cannot talk about what's happening in the world at work is just not realistic. But I think you have to make sure that it doesn't basically become the thing that everyone talks about and everyone forgets about work. So, having letting people to have an outlet without like it becoming so, you know, like so destructive to like you know the organization is is the balance we're trying to find and and, and getting you know, people distracted. And people do care. People do care about, like, what values do we stand for? People do care about, like, what is the kind of company? And one of the things I make clear is, like, listen, I don't care who you look like, you know, where you're from, what God you pray to, or who you love. We want to make this a place where you feel like mom and home. Period, full stop, et cetera. And that's one of our core values. and And we want to do everything in our power to do that. But we're not going to, like, you know react to every issue around the world because unfortunately there's a lot of bad stuff that happens and we just can't you know take our you know keep getting distracted by world events.
2: Important world event right now is immigration. You're an yes. immigrant?
0: Yes. You
2: grew up in India and then other places around the world. And a lot of the great CEOs of our time a lot of them from India in fact. Uh and Now we've got this weird thing in this country where we want to lock down the borders, uh, we want to stop immigration, H1B visas are now being, you know, used in such a um, heavy handed way, I think, to use a term, Um, you know, you you, you get laid off, you got to be out of the country in 30 days, even if you got a family. It's such a weak spot. It's such a a Achilles heel for our country right now, that Canada sees it as an attack vector, and they're giving people... These like 10-year golden visas, I was just in the UAE, they give a 10-year golden visa. They said, hey, listen, if you're H-1B, bring your family up here. We'll never kick you out. We'll give you as many years as you need. Uh, this is our way to compete with America. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what America should do in terms of recruiting talent, especially tech talent, entrepreneurial talent.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I'll tell you, I've lived in Asia. I've lived in Europe. I've lived in Africa. And I've lived here. In, I've actually lived in Canada for a little while for a very short period of time, and lived in, in the U.S. I still believe firmly that the U.S. Is, is the land of opportunity. It has enabled me to achieve things that there's no way I could achieve what I achieved in any other country. I'm so grateful for the United States for giving me the opportunities to give given me, and I'm so grateful. I mean, I have, um, you know, being someone of Indian origin, I've dealt with racism and discrimination in other parts of the world. And, yes, there's clearly... Uh, that year. But I would tell you, I've never felt more accepted in any country like the United States. So I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities this country has given me. And I'm really sad that our immigration policy is so dysfunctional. Um, because what made this country great was to attract people who want to seek opportunity, who want to say, hey, I want to create a better life for my family. Now, I do agree you got to do it the right way. You can't just like break laws to come into this country. And my parents did the right way. In fact, my dad went back to graduate school in Cornell. He was in his mid-40s, decided to go back to school because he felt, ironically now, that his Indian education would be valued. So he needed to have the, the pedigree of uh, an American degree. And, you know, they eviscerated their balance sheet, you know, and started over. And I'm really grateful for the... For the for what they did and the opportunities it gave gave me, and I'm sad that our immigration policy is so dysfunctional. Because I think my sense is that Congress is fiddling around with immigration, and you have places like Canada and other countries are seeing this as an opportunity. And I think people are so obsessed by the political drama that's happening at the southern border, they're forgetting that there's so many talented people who are going to either you know you know start companies or build great things. You know, et cetera, and and uh, um, and and frankly, that's a sec- that's you know because they are so obsessed about what's happening at the southern border, all immigration has kind of come to a complete stop, and it's really sad. It's really, really sad, and yeah. so much so. Like we are now starting to build out development teams in other parts of the world. We're we're starting to see great traction in Barcelona. You see a lot of Eastern Europeans moving to Barcelona. Um, Berlin is another place. Dublin, obviously, we've always been there for a while sydney australia was we have a Incredible. great team down there yeah and like and i worry that over time you know a lot of you know immigrants will say america is no longer the land of opportunity or america america doesn't want me anymore so i gotta go somewhere else and and i worry about the what, what the long-term effects of this com- on the country will it's be.
2: it's been so weaponized and abused by the political parties now it's it's so obvious that we can just call these two different things there are people who are illegally coming into the country and then there's talent recruiting and talent recruiting should be looked at, like, you know, this is a small number of people who are going to pay a massive amount of taxes, create a massive number of jobs, and who will, you know, give a competitive advantage to our country, and let us punch above our weight. You know, and then you could have compassionate, you know, the line out the door for people who are non, you know, skilled, non-technical, and you take in as many as you can. And and this is where the point-based system in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, and countless other countries has been very refined. but these politicians have weaponized it to a point of absurdity. we got 10 million open jobs in this country. We have the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Uh, you and I lived through times when uh, I graduated college in 92, 93. Man, it, nobody could get a job. 20, 30% unemployment amongst our contemporaries at that time. Uh, this is as good as it gets, folks. Lowest unemployment in 50 years. Uh, listen, this has been a great hour. Uh, congratulations on all your success. Um, and I'd love to have you back on the program again. There's been just such a great, unexpected, delightful management discussion uh, about a, a, a great number of issues and, uh, wish you great success with the AI products as well.
0: Thanks, Jason. Great to chat with you. All right,
2: and we will see you all next time on our all star summer here at this week in startups, man, we're getting we're getting can the I, greatest leaders. Can I make, one, can I make yes, uh, one
0: comment? So we do have uh, oh. we do have uh, uh, um, for those startups who want uh, maybe to access MongoDB um, oh, yeah, startup
2: program. Yeah, yeah.
0: So please go to MongoDB.com slash twist. And uh, you oh. can get access to up to $5,000 in Atlas credits, which is our cloud service. Fantastic. And, uh, and then we have other credits if you're, you know, an AI company that can build upon that and you get access to technical advice and partnerships and co-marketing opportunities. So, so there's Fantastic. free money available for startups. So, go to mongodb.com slash twist.
2: Oh, I love that. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, it, Mongo's got that great history of growing with startups. And so, it's great that you're giving all those free credits. Everybody go uh, and get those free credits. Now where they last. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye, everybody.